God's grace, God's mercy, God's kind of peace. Rest deep in your hearts and in your minds this day and always because of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the text that was given to me to preach on this morning, given to me by your beloved pastor and my old friend Mark, is that anointing story in John chapter 12, so far the text. The word scandal has an interesting background. If you look at the etymology of the word, it has all kinds of meanings. At one point it meant something that caused an offense. Another point said uh, something that is outrageous. Another definition is something that is beyond what is expected. What is the given? The truth is that all of us are attracted to scandalous things. We like to hear about scandals. And in our society right now, we have our choice of scandals every morning. As you sit there with a cup of coffee or tea and you listen or look at news and the scandals are there. They come to us from the world of sports, the world of Hollywood, the world of corporate, the world of politics. And we get to choose which scandal we want to listen to in the morning and how we're going to respond to it. The truth is, however, that scripture also is a place of great scandal. Outrageous things happened in the Bible if you read it all the way from old to new. All kinds of stuff that was beyond what was expected. All kinds of stuff that seemed outrageous. And this text today in the Gospel of John, I think, is Exhibit A. So all four Gospels have this kind of account of Jesus being anointed by somebody. All four Gospels have their own take on the story, if you will, their own little details. But in John's account, the context is a dinner party at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Bethany no doubt celebrating the recent resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. Now, there is a good reason to party. And evidently, things are going well. Jesus is there. The disciples are there. Mary, uh, Martha, rather, no surprise, is in charge of hospitality. And then, and then along comes Mary. Mary enters into the place where the men are eating their meal. This would have been a scandal in first century Jewish culture, scandal number one. You read between the lines and you realize at some point she has to take down her hair in public. Good women didn't do that in public. Scandal number two. Scandal number three, she pours a really expensive jar of perfume on Jesus' feet. And then for good measure, scandal number four, she kneels down and wipes his feet with her hair, at which point Martha, the older sister, faints in the corner. <laughs> and Lazarus is probably wishing, at least for the moment, that he was dead again. <laughs> this would have been incredibly outrageous, incredibly scandalous. If the National Enquirer had been around in Bethany in the first century, this would have been on the front cover. For his part, however, Jesus is not, does not think much of what happened was a scandal. 
Instead, he makes some cryptic reference to this sort of being a dress rehearsal for the anointing that will take place at his soon-to-be burial. Of course, nobody else in the room knows what he's talking about, but he knows the script. He knows where it's going. So it's an interesting, altogether curious story, but what do we do with it? The more I read, the more I prayed about it, the more I began asking myself the question, which I'll also put to you. What scandalous things have you done in your life because of your faith in Jesus Christ? What things have you done that are kind of beyond the expected, beyond the ordinary? What things would put you in that category of living a scandalously faith-filled life? You're already doing one of them, you don't know it, but with 80% of the American population no longer having any connection, living connection, to the Christian institutional church, they think that you're sitting in this building on a Sunday morning is scandalous. They think everything in here is just a glorious waste of time. That all of this is irrelevant and archaic at best. But dig deeper, what personally have you done in your life that might be described as scandalous faith because of your believing in Jesus? Have you been involved in an ongoing, long-term, compassionate care for somebody? Way beyond the thoughts and prayer stuff and way beyond the obligatory chicken casserole, which Lutherans do very well, with jello in the appropriate liturgical color, of course, to go with it. <laughs> but have you ever just spent time with people, listening to their story, putting up with them, maybe when they're not so easy to put up with, just because you believe in Jesus? Or maybe have you worked at learning how to let go of things that people have done to you in your life, Have you been able to move from letting go and even forgiving those things because of your faith in Christ? Or who have you talked to about your faith in Jesus outside of this building? And people in your family, in your workplace, in your school, in your gym, do they know that you're a Christian? And if so, what things would they offer as evidence. The truth is Christianity calls us to such scandalous things. If you're looking for a safe and easy religion, Christianity is not it. The gospel is always pulling more out of us, always demanding more from us, always enticing us to give, to let go, not to hold on, and to let God be God in our life. That all sounds very good, except we're Lutherans. You know, we're we're kind of a modest, self-effacing, gentle people. At least that's how I was raised. You know, Lutherans, we don't talk much about the faith. There aren't any Lutheran evangelists, you know, except, of course, for those from Ethiopia. Our wonderful brothers and sisters from Mekeniesos live a scandalous faith in the best sense of that word. They're not afraid to talk to anybody about Jesus. 
wherever, however, whenever. But for people like you and me, we've kind of never done this before. And, and given the kind of attitudes we hear and see in our society about people of faith, the headlines are never flattering, you know. Most of us, I think, would want to just simply say, well, I keep my faith quiet. You know, it's just between Jesus and me, because it's safer that way. Years ago, I was in Grand Central Station, New York City, and there was a guy standing on one of the benches in there preaching about the love of Jesus. He wasn't condemning anybody. He was just telling everybody, hey, Jesus really does love you. And I watched as people walked by him and laughed at him and shook their heads as though he were from another planet. So I think for the most part, you and I would be more tempted to be a little hesitant, a little quiet. You know, let others believe what they want to believe. It's just, you know, I, I believe in Jesus and that's it. Whenever I'm tempted in that direction, then I think of people in my life who lived, who lived a scandalous faith. I think of people like Mrs. Waxen and Mr. Horn, two of my early Sunday school teachers. As I look back, I realize now I was ADHD long before it was fashionable. <laughs> and long before they made drugs for it, I was a terrible student. And to this day, I regret that I probably sent those two saints home every Sunday with a blazing headache and an improved prayer life. <laughs> I cannot tell you what they taught me. But I do remember how they taught me. When they talked about Jesus, it was as if Jesus was right there in that moldy church basement with us in that classroom. When they talked about the love that Jesus has for people, they talked as if they knew what that love was. And they didn't care what anybody thought in the church or elsewhere. There was inside of them this incredibly, incredibly strong faith that just kept bubbling out. They couldn't stop themselves from sharing the love of God in Christ. As I thought about them, I thought, well, what would inspire them to do that? What would inspire Mary to do half the stuff she did in our text? Well, to understand that, you have to go back to the nature of the gospel itself. Think of it this way. God watching what we have done to this beautiful planet what we do to ourselves, what we do to each other, God would have every right to flick this little blue marble into the darkest, deepest corner of space and consider it a failed experiment. The gospel declares he did no such thing. Instead, and Paul uses the word, the Greek word, skandalon, scandal, as a word for the gospel. Instead, God chose to come among us, sneaking down the back stairs at Bethlehem when nobody was looking, 
He lived among us as one of us for us and even died here so that we might never again misunderstand God's intentions and God's desperate desire to love us in spite of ourselves. And when you really understand the scandalous, outrageous nature of the gospel that declares a love that is so rich, so deep, so eternal, so strongly operating for us that nothing and nobody can ever shut God's heart to us again, when you really understand what this stuff is about, when it sneaks beyond the holy words of Sunday morning and gets right in here where you really live, ah, then like Mrs. Watson or Mr. Horn or Mary or people like that in your life, then you find yourself just living by faith. And not in any dramatic, extraordinary, beat them on the head with the Bible kind of way, just in the everyday ordinary of how you go at life. Your words and actions in how you treat yourself, in how you treat others, in how you deal with what life throws at you. You learn to live by grace, which is a scandalous thought. You learn to live as if you do have a savior which is a scandalous thought. And when you do that, people notice. Because all that 80% out there, they want what you have in here. They really do. They're all, all, all looking for answers to the same questions. Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? The gospel has answers for all of those things in a gracious and powerful way. And you know, long before the church was an institution, long before buildings and stained glass and inspiring music and all the rest, as wonderful as these things are, at the heart, Christianity began as a movement. One person sharing or showing the love of God in Christ to another person. That's how the kingdom of God has been built for the last 20 centuries, and I don't read anywhere in Scripture where God intends to change the game plan anytime soon. If people are going to be drawn to Christ because of you, because of your scandalous faith, doing things beyond what's expected, doing things beyond the ordinary, living out, incarnating the love that we say we believe with our mouths. So what began as kind of a speed bump on the way to the cross here, this little anointing story, now becomes maybe something that makes us wonder and makes us think, first of all, of how incredibly scandalous the gospel itself is and how God loves you in spite of who you are. God knows you cold. God knows me cold. God says, I know everything you've said, done, thought. I love you anyway. That's it. And then, hopefully, it begins to make you wonder how you might live your faith more scandalously in the world so that others might be drawn to the cross and to the joy that you know.
Let it be so in your life and in mine. Let the people of God say, Amen.